September 30th, 1863. The plans have changed somewhat. I have fallen in with some rough types, but it seems to be the only way to get to the West, where I can find my fortune and make my parents proud. Welcome to Los Angeles, Mr. Fink. Is that him? Is that one Having trouble getting started. Are you a writer, Mr. Fink? Actually, I'm writing pictures now. Oh, it's an exciting time. Yes, sir, we're going to have some high old times. Living off the land, hunting and fishing. Chores? I ain't doing no chores. I'm sitting in the audience. The lights go down. Capital logo comes up. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Sleezoids, the podcast where we go down the rabbit hole of 20th century genre fare from the most influential canon classics to the trashiest exploitation films we can get our hands on and invite you to tag along in helping us create a canon of sleaze. Each week is a double feature grindhouse style where we discuss two films loosely related by subject, genre, actor, filmmaker, or franchise. And at the end of each episode, along with our honorary Sleezoids, which you can become by subscribing on Patreon. Come listen to us talk Steven Seagal and his three word titled movies. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that we cover. Uh, Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for over two years. So there are some like 50 plus bonus episodes, Lots of episodes. waiting for you, as well as our uh, bonus transmission series where we talk about some new release films. Uh, some of which will tie into today's episode. Uh, so uh, if you haven't subscribed to the Patreon, definitely consider doing that. And speaking of which, we had a lot of people make the jump this week. So I'm going to sorry that I'm going to have to like rip through these today. But uh, thank you so much to Zachary Ainsley, uh, to uh, D.H., Leonard the Comedian, Dan Spaceman, uh, Alex Writes Loud. Nice. Uh, John Cameron, Brian McNatt, Nicholas Reed. Uh, what else we got here? I think they're, oh, that's it. Thanks Thank to all you, you guys, much, guys so much for signing up for the Patreon. Hope you guys are enjoying those bonus episodes. Appreciate that's the one plug for the week. Uh, and the other plug for the week, as always, is iTunes. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts and I see the stats, I know you are. Scroll down to the bottom. Give us a little uh, rating and review down there. It helps us uh, climb the ranks and find new listeners over there. And we we did get one this week that I was uh, very happy to see. Someone who was just starting from the very beginning and announcing that uh, they are hoping to be caught up pretty soon. That's how fast they're going through <laughs> <Wow>. the episodes. <laughs> um, and they also said that on top of us being fun and insightful, which I will, I will uh, take that uh, compliment, they also enjoyed the cat that <laughs> appears variously throughout certain episodes, which is my cat. Yeah, the side um, the guest star. She is our silent producer. She hangs out in here while we talk about uh, sleazy movies all the time. Right. Um, <laughs> but that being said, uh, those are all the plugs. As always, I am your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me is my co-host. Jamie Miller. Welcome back. Welcome back. Two weeks ago, I think, would have been the last time you guys would have heard from us, um, free listeners, where we would have had a double feature of uh, Nighthawks. Yeah. From 1981, starring uh, Rutger Hauer and Sylvester Stallone. In a and dress. we paired it. <laughs> yes, and we paired <laughs> it with Night of the Juggler from 1980, which uh, starred uh, James Brolin. And both were very sweaty, uh, late 70s uh, New York grime crime films. Yeah. Both very cool. We had uh, special guest Jason Bailey, who uh, just finished writing an entire book on New York City uh, history and crime yeah. uh, in regards to especially its depiction on film. So he brought those films with him as underrated gems he found while doing that. Um, and they both mark a transition period from the uh, sort of 1970s, sort of taking a Palin 1, 2, 3 or Dog Day Afternoon era of New York crime uh, filmmaking uh, and leading us more into the insane 80s of something more like Cobra or something. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, what a film. But that was uh, uh, two weeks ago, if you haven't heard that one, any podcast listener of choice. Uh, and la- last week, for the bonus listeners, we went off of that episode, because I think it was Nighthawks was directed by uh, Bruce Malmuth, I think, who also directed uh, Hard to Kill with uh, Steven Seagal. So we did Hard to Kill, as well as Out for Justice, the first time talking about Steven Seagal, Out some, for Justice, obviously, by John Flynn. That actually. We did Ro- Rolling Thunder, and I was really impressed at how much of Rolling Thunder's just really mean, nasty violence made its way into Out for Justice, even if Steven yeah. Seagal... Uh, produced it and had to do his own thing inside <laughs> know, of a movie that doesn't really up. fit his thing, but yeah, that's fine. We had a fun time talking about him. He's an he's an interesting screen presence, and the '90s was an insane time. It really was. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was last week's bonus episode for uh, anyone who didn't get a chance to check that one out again. Patreon.com/slash/thesoidspodcast. Uh, but this week we have a very special guest. Um, joining us, as always, uh, bringing on two unique films of their own. Uh, And this week, we are very pleased to say that we have uh, writer and director Josh Trank on. Josh, how are you doing? I'm good. I was just enjoying the podcast, and now I have to be a part of it. (laughs) Yeah, now you're in it. Sorry, man. (laughs) No, 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 no. It's perfectly fine. Um, I'm good. I'm good. I'm quarantined and... uh, just me and my my little pup here. Um, are you are you out. busy? I'm I am. I'm pretty busy. Um, just as busy as I've been prior to global pandemic. Um, so I guess that's a good thing. I'm just yeah. Yeah. Well, Jamie and I um, can say that we covered uh, recently Capone in our bonus transmission on the show, and it seems like unlike yeah. a lot other people that we spoke to about the film we were actually pretty decent fans of it um yeah. cool and uh we we saw you online kind of reacting to everyone else's reactions to your film and yes. stuck inside while doing that i'm sure that was a really bizarre time <laughs> uh it's all you know what it always feels like a bizarre time no matter what um so i guess if anything this feels more honest because it's that much it's more literally crazy Mm. As opposed to just the vibe of craziness, like the craziness is just like real and it's happening. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it was definitely interesting um, absorbing the reactions across the board mm. um, while also maintaining a position of neutrality. Um, yeah, I imagine that's got to be tough. <laughs> you know, it wasn't really that tough because I love the movie. So there's really nothing yeah. anybody could say to me to throw me off my zen about that. I mean, well, I saw that some I, of the people yeah. were, like that had critiques or whatever were even things that you, you know, were trying to get across. So it seemed like it wasn't something that you were like, well, that that doesn't bother me because that's exactly <laughs> yeah, what I was trying to do. <laughs> they didn't well, misunderstand. I made them feel uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, pretty much. Like, I, I, if that's the reason you hate the movie, it's more about the subjectivity of what you like to consume. Art wise, like that makes sense. That's fine to me. I mean, there were so many reviews that nailed every aspect of the film and all the ways that I hoped somebody would understand the movie and and appreciate it. So, you know, while you had a, you know, I'd say um, an ample majority of critics and user reviews that complained about the film being slow and being about nothing. 
On the other hand, you had we a love good that 30 stuff, to so. 40. Well, but on the <laughs> other hand, you had a good 30 to 40% of critics and user reviews that were saying the polar opposite, saying that this movie, wow, that, you know, 116 minutes went by so quickly. And this movie was about so much at once. It, it, I need to watch it a second time. Mm-hmm, so right. it, it's, you know, I'd rather put out a movie. If I'm putting out a movie that's this, this much from my heart, um, in such an uncompromising way, I prefer that it's the kind of movie that people either engage with completely frame by frame or are just totally turned off by. It's fine. Well, you definitely successfully managed that one, I think. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like I set out thinking like, okay, the goal is the reaction down the line. Yeah. It was the goal was to express myself as transparently as possible with this movie in the ways that were meaningful to me. So, um, you know, I've gotten a lot of uh, messages from people saying that they watched the film with their, because, you know, it's funny. There's also, uh, I've seen some reviews from some people saying how they did not appreciate the sense of humor applied to the experience of dementia as they had experienced, you know, a parent or a grandparent suffering from that. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, I'd get messages from people saying, hey, my father perished from, you know, uh, it, you know, experiencing dementia or my grandfather or grandmother. And this was a very touching experience for me because I felt it was so naked and raw. And it's yeah. Well, uh, and, 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 and personally, I've I've seen that before, too. And, and my experience is that it is kind of awkward and absurd. Like, sorry, right. that's that's the experience of dealing with you know, being a family member of someone like that in a lot of cases. So, I um, mean, a lot of like, for instance, you know, uh, so many of my, my inspirations just come from my upbringing, being Jewish and being a descendant of Holocaust survivors. And, you know, a big part of our culture is gallows humor, you know, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. there's more comedy that's come out of the concentration camps than you can imagine. And that seems weird, but that's mm-hmm. kind of how some people culturally just deal with life. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's a really interesting point, too, because I was recently listening to the Movies That Made Me podcast where they had Eli Roth on recently. And he sure. said something similar where people were asking him about things like Hostel. And he was like, you know what? The movies that I make don't really shock me. Like, people call me a bit of a shock jock sometimes. And he was just kind of like, when you have a family that grows up, like, talking about genocide at the dinner table, like, it's just a matter-of-fact thing that happened to your family. He was like, yeah. that's the way you look at the world. So he's like, my movies, to me, aren't shocking as much as they seem to be to other people. And he was like, it was part of his upbringing. And it was really interesting, you know, um, hearing that part of it. Because, like, obviously, to me, I didn't have that experience. But you kind of get that a little bit now watching his films. Even though, even if people think that it is tasteless in its own way or, you know, whatever. Yeah, for sure. I totally feel that. I mean, you know, like... I, <laughs> I think at the end of the day, if you're going to make something that makes sense to you, you just have to, again, once it's out in the world, it's important to take a stance of neutrality if that's exactly the movie that you want to make. Because if people are going to hate it, they're going to be offended by it, then you've just successfully contributed a piece of art to the world. That's just how, how well, it works. You yeah, know? and... Like, and two, speaking of which, uh, transitioning us into what we're going to be talking about today, I think the main film that you've brought with you today is partially about art being this sort of like insular 
thing that, you know, as as much as you might want to try to communicate to an audience uh, that you're disconnected from, like ultimately there is like an expression of, you know, you are in your own head and you can only express yourself as much as you can um, externally, you know, so. Um, but that being said, we will have you introduce the two films that you've brought with you today and uh, yes. why you paired them together. So the two films, my little double bill, my double feature, uh, <laughs> is Barton Fink by the Coen brothers and Bad Company 1972 by Robert Benton, not to be confused with the Bad Company film that came out in the late 90s, early 2000s starring Chris Rock. So I just have to make that clear. <laughs> Um, which I haven't seen, but I should. It might be better for me than than this one. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I chose these two movies for different reasons. So on the surface, if somebody were to just ask me, what are two movies that are, are closest to my heart in a visceral way? I would say Barton Fink and Bad Company. Um, as it also relates to films that have are, are sort of connected spiritually and logistically i think that these movies although one is a movie about a um a frustrated young new york playwright who's trying to make make sense of his life writing b pictures for hollywood um and then a film that is basically a winding road western about these young kids on the run from the civil war um they actually do have quite a bit in common in terms of the artists um, behind the camera. So, mm. um, you know, Barton Fink is obviously written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, who are longtime collaborators since uh, they were children. Mm-hmm. And then you have Bad Company, which is uh, interestingly um, directed by Robert Benton and written by Robert Benton and David Newman, who were longtime collaborators um, who wrote such classics as Kramer and Kramer. Uh, they also collaborated on the Christopher Reeve Superman movie. Um, they also uh, wrote and uh, directed a film that is another one of my favorites, but in no way sort of, I think... Uh, would make sense paired up with Barton Fink, probably more like The Big Lebowski, which maybe we can come back again for another installment of this. But, oh, for uh, sure. That'd be awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, um, a movie um, uh, called The Late Show, starring Art Carney and Lily Tomlin. Mm. That is, uh, again, it's one of my favorite movies. It's a movie similar to Bad Company. Not a lot of people know about it. Um, it's a sort of dark comedy observational comedy throwback noir buddy film about (laughs) art carney who is this aging pi who's renting a room in the valley and he ends up going down this rabbit hole taking on a last job trying to find the cat of uh sort of post hippie lily tomlin in the 1970s it's awesome it's great movie anyway i'm gonna check that out Absolutely. Um, Good pairing with uh, Big Lebowski. Um, But anyway, so I I chose these two films, Bad Company and Barton Fink, um, for the the two reasons. And a third reason, as I was kind of thinking about it this morning, sort of what about these two movies might have, might sort of 
like kind of the reason why they've connected with me so viscerally. And uh, I don't, I sort of the first time I've realized this, but both films are completely unsentimental stories scored with music that is so emotional and sentimental. Oh yes. Yeah. And I, and I don't know why I've never really thought about that before, but it just struck me this morning as I was kind of, you know, thinking about the films in my mind. No, that, that that's a really important point. We'll definitely get into it, um, especially because I think it's a little bit more obvious in, in Bad Company, uh, especially with yeah. just, you know, the, the two different forms that that's operating in and, and how those contradictions like make that film, you know, sort of like um, impactful. But what Carter Burwell is doing on Barton Fink is a lot more subtle. And I didn't even pick up on it till I rewatched. This is probably I, I rewatched it twice just for the show because I just love it so much. And it wasn't until the second time that I watched it that the score really picked up for me this time. And it, it really expresses something that like nothing else in the film expresses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's um, so interesting because when you think about the score for Barton Fink, it's so it's so simple. It's just a couple of notes that repeat mm-hmm. that play in different ways that evolve throughout the film. But it's so. It's not what you would think in in like an obvious way to apply to a film about a guy who is as bizarre looking as John Turturro <laughs> living in this, you know, nightmarish apartment in Los Angeles in the 1940s. But is so poignant and beautiful and mm-hmm. adds just such a such an emotional weight to it that, like you said, it's like if it were not for that, like. You know, I, I try to. I a lot of the times I'll watch movies and try to imagine, like, okay, well, what what would it be like without the score or a different score? And you know, it it just changes the vibe of the film so much. No, ab- absolutely. Um, but that being said, I think we are going to jump right into it here. We are going to start off uh, with Mine's Barton Fink. Peace of mind. Right now, the contents of your head are the property of Capital Pictures. Charlie, why me? Because you don't listen! I'm a writer. A new film by Joel and Ethan Cohen. All right, so we are talking Barton Fink, the uh, 1991 American period psychological thriller film as written by (laughs) Wikipedia there, but obviously in typical Coen Brothers fashion, uh, bending and incorporating so many different kinds of genres uh, that kind of... Hard to describe at that point as as anything that fits cleanly into any sort of box. Um, Definitely. But... Uh, the film, obviously written and directed by the Coen brothers. I'm sure a lot of people listening to the show will be familiar with the film. Um, even when it came out, it was very acclaimed. It uh, famously took the Palme d'Or as well as Best Director and Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival, which I believe made them change the rules so that another movie couldn't do that. Um, and um, the film loosely follows John Turturro, who um, they wrote this character um, for as Barton Fink, who is a renowned New York playwright and who sees a lot of success in his sort of um, working class common man uh, art pieces that he is putting on. Um, and he is 
asked to move to New York, or sorry, New York, L.A., uh, to Hollywood, where he is being offered a gig writing uh, B-pictures for uh, somewhere between $1,000 and $2,000 a week, which I'm sure in 1940 was an absurd amount of money. Uh, And the rest of the film is his experience uh, in Hollywood and how that uh, sort of decrepit... (laughs) Uh, place of production and of artistry gone to die turns into a very uh, hellish uh, experience um, for him. Yeah, that's about all I can do to, to summarize that. But there's obviously obviously a, a huge amount to get into here. It's it's the fourth feature film by the Coen brothers, following up um, a string of just what a what an opening first four films. Uh, <laughs> yeah, mic drop. Real. With uh, opening with Blood Simple, obviously like a Texas neo-noir that obviously established the Coen's very unique blend of sort of like dark fatalistic humor as well as sort of like existential and philosophical qualities. Um, Also, they're very interested in sort of like people wandering sort of like machines of their own making in a way and sort of being uh, having impulses of self-interest and uh, being controlled a little bit also by, you know, some Coen brothers characters are not the smartest people. Um, <laughs> yeah. And by the way, just, just let me say, this is such a, a really like spot on description of blood simple and just the cones in general. So bravo. <laughs> this is great. Uh, yeah, well, and, and Blood Simple just really, for me, it, it, it communicated like their artistic statement of, you know, a minor miscommunication or impulse escalating into like a life or death um, situation. And and um, especially to something that they reused in Barton Fink, because I rewatched Blood Simple recently, too. Uh, all of the hums of the ceiling fans and the ambient soundscape and how that goes into like full blown, like existential yeah. horror. Like that is probably the thing that translates the most to Barton Fink mixed yeah. a little bit with their, their period drama sensibility that they applied a little bit to the prohibition era, uh, gangster film that they did Miller's crossing, which is also just one of my absolute favorites yeah, um, of, of their films. Also uh, in the most unexpected ways, where they'll introduce that kind of sound design, like in Barton Fink at the end of the first scene, the introduction when he's standing backstage and the cast goes out to take their, um, their bow for the, the applause. Yeah. And then Barton Fink walks out and they slowly start to rise up the sound of just the sort of ventilation hell sound effects. <laughs> Like, yeah, right. it's just so random. But and he's also it's got so that creepy. completely spaced outlook where you're not sure if he's like going through an episode of some kind or if he's like yeah. just entranced <laughs> by his own work or whatever it is. Well, yeah, and and it's worth noting too that like the opening images of this are a dolly shot on the wallpaper of the hotel where we're going to spend the majority of this film, yeah. followed by. Uh, images and sounds of like the ropes and pulleys like behind the stage like orchestrating mm-hmm. the curtains and orchestrating the lights and it, it really sets you up for like we are going to kind of look behind the curtain at a particular and in a particular way here and it kind of combines a little bit of Preston Surges's like Sullivan's Travels a little bit of like the Day of the Locust and for me honestly the biggest reference point <laughs> for this film is uh, weirdly enough probably like Eraserhead 
It's the only other yeah. film I feel like has that uncanny soundscape and like deliberately the and sound and the, the hair, hair and, sound. and it really it brings also, like a loneliness too. Like it really expresses, I think, how alone he feels. I mean, when you just have him in a room and all you hear is the the ceiling fan with no score or anything like that, you just you get that sense of I am completely by myself here. Well, yeah, and just that deliberately ambiguous, like surreal externalization of what is very clearly internal feelings and yeah. conflicts. Which is also very um, present in, you know, something like Polanski's Repulsion, which was uh, also something that they talked about a lot when they were making this film of like just an impressionist, like solitary psychic breakdown. It's all like mundane details, sound design. I think in that film, they also even have like the walls, like literally crumbling and fissuring as like a representation of like the psychological state, which is something here where we get with the wallpaper, like peeling off and revealing like this weird like fleshy pussy like underbelly yeah, that right. that is like you know just barely being covered over with some paper which you know an allegory for hollywood if i've ever seen one um <laughs> But um, most fascinating, I think, about this is that they, they the Coens have talked about it a lot. But this film came out of a, um, a a rut that they were experiencing while writing the film Miller's Crossing, which a lot of people will know came out actually one year before um, Barton Fink. Um, so while they were stuck in writing their uh, gangster film, which, uh, you know, is filled with all kinds of backstabbing and, and double crossing in a way that it's almost comedic, but is uh, still filled with like this idea of like um, our bleak attempts at having like moral codes and um, you know, the people who survive are maybe just the best at manipulating them and, and, and things like that. So while they were writing that film, they got into the, they didn't describe it as writer's block, but it sounds a lot like writer's block is what they were experiencing. And apparently they stuck themselves up in a motel and they just they described it as they burped Barton Fink out. So it came from a very <laughs> isolated experience of a writer's trapped in a hotel room being like, we need to express something. We need to get something out of our system. And they basically made a film that captures that feeling absolutely to a T. And um, also, also being extremely Jewish. <laughs> yes, a very. I can. Very, I, I. don't know. Is uh, am I the only uh, Heb on the line right now? Uh, <laughs> yes. At the moment, I but so. I, I will say. Okay, I do, so I can say that if absolutely. you guys said that, I wouldn't be offended because I feel like we're all friends at this point. But I can say that because see, this is the thing. So I first saw Barton Fink when I was eight years old, nine years old. Okay. I know I know it was before I was double digits. And I didn't understand it at all when I first saw it. Um are you either Fair. of you aware of something called the Z channel? Uh no, so. actually. Okay. So the Z channel is very important to LA uh cinephile history. So the Z channel was basically uh I guess you'd describe it as like a public access station that okay was owned by this very wealthy guy who I think came from family money and he was super eccentric and had a very, very uh, huge collection of uh, movies like avant-garde movies and um, uh, new wave, European new wave films. And so my dad in uh, this, so this was in LA in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, you'll have to fact check me on that. But <laughs> anybody who lived in LA during that time period who was super into movies, um, 
they were obsessed with the Z channel is if you imagine like sort of the criterion collection or something like that, it existed as a public access station, like in the early, early days. So my dad used to, uh, he started on this obsessive thing where he would record on VHS eight hour long play tapes, which was like not the best quality to record in eight hour long play, but um, he'd record basically every single movie that played on the Z channel and he'd catalog them. Um, cause my dad's a huge film buff. So my dad, when I was growing up, there was this closet wherever we moved, there would be one closet that would just be dedicated to all the VHS tapes. So this was Barton Fink came out after the Z channel, but Barton Fink definitely fall, fell in line with the sort of lineage of what the Z channel had to offer. Mm. Um, so my dad had recorded the movie at some point. So I had just picked it up and watched it. And as somebody who grew up in a, such a Jewish family that my dad actually makes Holocaust documentaries for a living in my life. I had never, ever, ever seen a person look so Jewish in a movie before. So it (laughs) stayed with me and I always went to rewatch it. Because it just, again, I'd never seen somebody look so Jewish in a film. And it made me feel like I was seen, as the kids say. I also don't like the, the, the movie. Like a lot of these characters, uh, mostly the Hollywood executives and the presidents are extremely anti-Semitic and just like yelling out all the self-loathing Jews. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, he, he goes, you, he goes, you lousy kike son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> Is one of the most powerful and from literally one of the most Jewish looking men you could cast next to a Jewish looking John Sturrow to say such a line. Yeah, Michael, Michael Lerner, I think, is the one who has that line. Oh, no, yeah, Michael Lerner. But like he's just he he could not be more Jewish as a studio executive (laughs) with the most angry homicidal look in his eyes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was actually full volume. He just, it's, it, 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 it just comes out of him with such a quiet rage. Yeah. Well, and, and I was, uh, I was showing the film for the first time to, um, my, my girlfriend, um, who is Jewish. And, uh, when obviously I celebrate a lot of the holidays with them and I, I go to a lot of her family gatherings and her mom is a Holocaust educator. So she's, she's very, um, knowledgeable about all of the stuff. And that scene where Michael Lerner drops the cape, um, like viscerally, uh, impacted her while she was watching the film. And then especially too, there's the anti-Semitic, uh, detectives who talk about the hotel not being restricted by the way one of the most one of the most real moments if you're jewish and you had parents that grew up in america back in the 1940s or 50s or 60s like that's such a real moment like Mm -hmm. it's just and they followed that up by the way with the sort of with uh with the serious man but i'm sorry continue that is some real shit no, yeah, for for sure, and and the way that they, because I mean, they did set it um, um, just on the precipice of America joining World War II. I think America decides to join World War II in the middle of the movie, which is where where we get the USO <laughs> show. It's where we get the Hollywood producer in like a military general outfit that he just stole from like the set of a movie, presumably. Yes, exactly. By the, um, yeah, the end of the movie is like I'm now the general. Yeah, but I I found honestly that the things that were the most impactful was obviously how you know a lot of the times you can 
you know, you you feel like Barton is being welcomed in, but he's also being, you know, sort of held away. And, and he does have some um, anxieties, clearly, about um, the World War II happening in, in the background, obviously. But, but the way that I found it sort of like the most eerie, I think was um, how it just so subtly infuses with the rest of his anxieties. Because obviously he has artistic anxieties. He has anxieties, obviously, about the, the industry that he's a part of. And he also has more like philosophical ones. He, he, he has pretensions of wanting to you know, deliver a new form of, of, of working class art by and for the people. Um, Without actually we, listening to yes, the common man. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> I don't, bro- oh, brother. He's like, oh, brother, I've got stories. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> he has to do that at least five or six times in the film <laughs> yeah well and from what i understand too the film is is a little bit based on clifford clifford oditz who is the socially conscious like 1930s playwright who spent a little bit of time in in hollywood he was one of the founding members of what i think they called the group theater which was the idea of like trying to recreate through theater like the the actual human experience of like poverty and and things like this um, but uh, but also a little bit inspired by William Faulkner, who uh, obviously also had a brief stint in Hollywood. And from what I understand, actually literally wrote a wrestling picture for the same actor Barton's writing a wrestling picture for called oh, wow. uh, Flesh from 1932. Who is who's the uh, William Monahue character supposed to be? I, t- I forgot. Um, oh, the, the, the Mayhew, the, the drunk. Yeah. The Mayhew. I'm sorry. Mayhew. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, he, he is supposed to be a little bit of William Faulkner, who was apparently a known, uh, alcoholic right, and right, also, right, right. also being a, a Southern novelist who, uh, is invited to write movies for Hollywood as well. Um, okay. but, but they have also said that like the more, uh, abusive elements of <laughs> that character that they were just like, we don't know if that's anything about Faulkner. We just used him as like a kind of gateway for the overall experience of writers who wrote plays and novels, you know, moving into Hollywood and finding themselves in a very different mode of writing that has a lot of sort of like industry um, uh, things imposed on on them and sort of the psychological experience of, of, of um, moving to that mode of, of artistry. Um, and then especially here too, the way that that sort of turns into Barton's entire surroundings. Like when he stays in this hotel and it's worth noting too, he stays in this rundown hotel specifically because he wants to uh, be more with the people. He doesn't want to have a nice lavish hotel paid for him by the studio because he feels it will sort of separate him from his art. Um, Also, by the way, by the way, is I, I'm uh, legally allowed to point out very, (laughs) very Jewish. He was saving money. Yeah, <laughs> fair, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. But also this 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 hotel, um, because of the way that obviously the Coens and Roger Deakins, who they were working with for the first time on this film, the way that they shoot this film, um, it, it really gave me that Overlook Hotel, The Shining kind of vibe where it's just something like something so ordinary. When we did The Shining on the show, we talked about the thing that's so terrifying about that film is how he doesn't really need special lighting or special angles to make that place scary. He just takes yeah. the ordinary and makes it so surreal and eerie uh, by bringing, making it take on like this strange labyrinth kind of quality to it. And I mean, in this film, we have that wallpaper literally uh, peeling off of it. I love in the sound design when he first arrives at the hotel and he rings that bell and that bell just keeps ringing throughout the yeah. whole hotel for like 30 seconds until Chet 
Steve Buscemi literally seems to come out of the earth (laughs) into the hotel and then stops the bell from ringing. There's also this big, like, almost ghostly element to it where they have all the shoes in the hallway all the time. And you, I don't think you ever once, maybe maybe there's one little glimpse of somebody, but you never see the other people that are in the hotel. So you just, there's this uneasy ghostly feeling about it too. It's very haunting. Yeah, the only people you see in the hotel are the elevator operator, Chet, and then obviously John Goodman's um, insurance salesman, um, Charlie. Yeah, and um, the elevator yeah. guy like, even has like one sentence he says over and over again or next, something. Next stop, sixth floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, the implication, uh, the, the only implication we have of people existing in this hotel is obviously sounds of crying. Sometimes that happens in rooms. Sounds of sex that sometimes happening in, in rooms. And then obviously, as you mentioned it, the, the shoes, Jamie. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it kind of implies that, you know, maybe there's a whole other bunch of traveling salesmen and failed writers and other people having similar experiences in this hotel. It's worth noting that Barton also at one point um, is is probably heard having sex and crying in his room, which are the two things that he hears happening in the other rooms. Um, right. But but the shoes are also kind of evocative of um Holocaust images that I've seen um, where you have lots of um, you will see that like a lot of things that were left over were just the shoes that these people owned and they were like piled up and left there. So I found that image really eerie when he looks out into the hall and he just sees people defined as like these just there's the shoes that they own, which they are obviously leaving out for Chet. To, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's funny, though. I, I, I have to say something that I love about the Coen brothers is every time that they're interviewed, there is one uh, very famous incident, in fact, when Elvis Mitchell um, interviewed them years ago on stage for some co- some event, I don't remember. Yeah. Well, yeah. Whenever they're being asked about the deep, very deeper meanings of yes. their films and all the symbolism, they'll just be like, uh, yeah, sure. they just, the sh- they left the shoes outside. but that's not yeah that's not me i think i think low-key it's a subconscious thing yeah and i think it makes sense but i just i i I love how you know of course like because their movies are so immaculate and are so perfect in the ways that they exist they can be completely condescending (laughs) about answers to questions and critics and fans alike are just kind of like oh that's cute (laughs) <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Well, yeah. well, well. I, I will say beyond like um, sort of like subtle images that people have their own reactions to. Because I, I will say I pulled that reaction from my own girlfriend's reaction. She's more familiar with uh, Holocaust images than than I am personally. Um, but like, there. This is one of the few films that I watch that is so deliberately you can feel that ambiguity that they're going for. Um, yeah. And this is one of the few films that I am calmed by telling you that at a certain point, I have no idea what the fuck's going on. Um, that I am, I am actually very cool with accepting that this is a mysterious. I have a question. I have a question. How, how, how old are you guys? I'm 20, 26. As you get older, the movie is going to make sense more and more and more, especially, (laughs) especially I don't mean that in a bad way because I I've talked to this, um, to therapists. I've talked to this, I've talked about this to therapists. I've talked about this to friends. Like every year of my life, the movie makes more and more sense to me. The first time I ever watched Barton Fink, it made fucking no sense to me. I was <laughs> eight, nine years old. And I'm like, who is this extremely Jewish man 
on the screen. And that was my, my first, my first pull into the film. And as the years have gone on, I mean, the movie now makes complete sense to me in a way that's almost frightening. Um, you know, for yeah. instance, uh, you were bringing up, you know, in the, the first scene of the film when he's just kind of staring off, um, right. at the crowd and you're kind of wondering like, what is he even thinking about? Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, I watch that movie now and I know exactly what he's thinking. He is in deep, deep pain and frustration and embarrassment over the fact that the all of the wrong people love this piece of art about the right. common man. Yeah. That yeah. he, you know, has literally removed himself from society, from that aspect of society to write about. He hates the people that are applauding the film. He hates them. Right. And it hurts him that they're the ones who are watching it on opening night. Yeah, he, he feels, hates them. And then when he more when like the a next gut scene, thing, right? Well, no, no, he just hates he hates the crowd. But doesn't he mention like him. when he's talking when he's, to the Well, critics. for instance, like in the, the next scene, the next scene when he goes to a restaurant and he sits down with those patrons. Right. And you know, they've got there's this this long passage where um, fuck, I forget what the guy does, but the, the guy's a Barton. You know? <laughs> yeah. He, he, he's sitting there and, you know, the two rich patrons who are, you know, and he reads them the glowing the, review. Yeah. They live in the Upper East Side. They have no fucking idea what it's about, but they're just happy that it's a success. <laughs> and they're like, you know, they don't even have an opinion of what it is that he did, that he poured his heart into, that is probably led to so many sleepless nights and harrowing, harrowing experiences of, you know, his own personal life leading up to this opening of this play. And they're just like, oh, let's hear the review so we can hear how great it's supposed to be because they don't get it. So when he's standing there backstage, he's hearing the applause of a bunch of people who just truly don't get it and who it is not really for at the end of the day. Well, and and also, too, he's he's kind of like wincing while he's hearing the lines being read a little bit, too. (laughs) Like like there there is this thing about like just even the the pain of like not being in full control of it almost in a way that that it, that it, it exists as its own thing outside of him now. Well, he's, well, he's making, he, he's, he's writing art about the common man that exists purely for the spectacle of high society. Right. Yeah. And then he's invited to go out to LA to write B movies to be consumed by the common man. Yes. Yeah. Which is, which is, which is one thing I, I thought was really interesting when they detail that when he first talks to John Goodman and John Goodman, like knows the actors and knows all the films he's talking about. And cause he's, he's seen them all. So it's like, he, like John Goodman is more likely going to see your art. He's a source uh, it, for like what you're yeah. looking for. Yeah. Well, it, it, like John Goodman's character, the traveling insurance salesman is like more likely to engage with him as an artist if he made a B picture than if he was to have a play in New York. He would like, just be something he would never get the opportunity to see. Right. Yeah, and, and I think it's really important that it gets into his sort of, you know, his, his artistic goals and process in that way um, because obviously that is to him in, in contradiction with the work that he's being given by Hollywood and which is what kind well, of like sparks this I, sort of like breakdown that he has a little bit. I hate to be as pretentious as Barton Fink, but <laughs> if you indulge me for a moment, for um, sure. so when I, uh, when Chronicle came out, the look on Barton's face, Barton Fink's face 
when the crowd is applauding is how I felt when the crowd was applauding for Chronicle because I felt that they were applauding and reviewing a film based off of the merits of uh, ideas that were the least um, personal aspects to me. Cool mm. how kid, teenagers having fun with cool powers. Wee! <laughs> <laughs> you know, I made a movie about bullying and, and child abuse. Right, yeah. And I'm seeing all these glowing reviews talking about you know, it's like the, a superhero the, movie kind of thing. Redu- yeah, it's so just, sick. It, to me, it's not a fucking superhero movie. <laughs> Absolutely. And, fu- and and I'll say it, fuck Max Landis. He had nothing to do with the movie. You know, <laughs> he wrote a draft of the film. I was going to ask I've you, already, but I was I've already afraid. Gone That's on my, yeah, I've gone on my ticker tape parade, you know, finally to tell everybody why, how Chronicle was actually written and where it actually came from. Max wrote a draft. He fucking, you know, glommed himself onto the movie. Yeah, so I, 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 I let's finally uh, take him out of the equation. This was that, that I read was a that film that, that came from my heart. profile. Well, that, yeah, I will you, say this. You mentioned I, something about I, like just so you know, it's like my my I I, I have I I have certain rules about life, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not if if you're gonna go out and spread lies about me, <laughs> I I'm it I'm not going to spend the energy to go out and try to undo the lies unless they are legally pertinent. You know, like (laughs) it's just whatever. If you want to think that I didn't come up with that movie for years of my life, I literally don't care. It's the first movie I made. I'm going to make 500 movies. Right. You know, (laughs) but, and the fact that Max was an extremely loud person on social media for however many years until he wasn't allowed to be. Yeah, and I'm just like, well, if I say anything right now, I'm just going to look like a bitter asshole because he's out here thriving and selling scripts, and I'm just somebody who everybody isn't quite sure how to feel about yet, you know? So, yeah. I anyway, but that said, you know, this is a film that I had lived with in, in my soul for so many years, so when I saw these great glowing reviews, which it's like the dream of any filmmaker, especially for their first film, is for it to be a success and for the critics yeah. to love it. I had felt that they loved it for all the reasons that I just made me unsure how to talk to people about it. Mm. Cause it's, that that's not what drove me every single day. I thought I was touching on sort of the core of an experience of peer and parental abuse yeah. that if, you know, given these telekinetic powers in this very sort of organic evolutionary way would, turn into um, a nightmare for everybody um, at the hands of Dane DeHaan's character, Andrew. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that was not really discussed a lot in any of the reviews. And I just kind of felt this existential dread, you know, it, it, like, again, you know, if I didn't care, then I would be the kind of director that, wouldn't have ended up making of you know falling on the sword for his version of Fantastic Four. I would have gone off and done whatever the fuck anybody wanted me to do. Which, by the way, at this point sounds kind of nice because I'd like to just like go out there and you know sort of make money and live a life in 36 at this point for fuck's sake. But um <laughs> but um no I'm I mean, I'm glad I, these are the feelings like, you feel while watching Barton Fink. But yeah. yeah, I mean, but the thing is, Barton Fink is such an influential person to me, such an influential character, because I feel like him a lot. I mean, you know, whether or not 
I don't, it's one thing, you know, when the movie ends, it's hard to tell, you know, whether or not the Coens truly feel like they're connected to this character or if he's just sort of like an expression of, you know, their experience in some very specific cynical way. But I, as somebody who just grew up watching that movie, I feel a lot in common with that character. And I look back on that character and I feel a little bit less in common with him now as I've grown up. Mm. But at the time, you know, like every year of my life, especially once I had made my first movie, Barton Fink is the only movie in my life that just like started to evolve deeper in a way that made sense to me in a way that no other movie has ever made sense to me. Yeah. All right. Now, now, are you living surrealist sequences that blur reality <laughs> and fantasy? Yeah. I made, a floating mosquito made, in your room that won't Fon- leave. Yeah, and then I made Fonzo. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> I I will say, after watching uh, your Capone film there, I, I def- and then watching Barton Fink, I was like, oh, dude. I, c- I could see it. I was like, this is, this yeah. is a, I, I could see your love for this film everywhere all over that movie when I finally ended up watching uh, this one uh, again. And just the way that it, it merges all of the different genres together, because this even has a little bit of a turn into the noir with the detectives. It eventually turns into a little bit of a serial killer horror film at a certain point. It, it has that 30s period um, sort of like art deco kind of look to it. Um, and then, yeah, then it gets into some of the, the really bleak comedy. Uh, and I, I gotta say, while, while I was, um, watching this, I couldn't help but notice that, uh, Michael Lerner's character has a statue of Atlas in his office. Yep. So Did I yeah. that right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> what's, and this is the thing too, you know, we're a couple of, you know, film freaks like we love film we're into like weird things and all kinds of stuff like if you showed barton fink to the same exact amount of people that clicked you know purchase on capone two weeks ago i wonder what i wonder what the reviews would be i wonder what the reactions would be Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, a back to you know, I feel like, and, and, and this is, you know, my, my, my very subtle burn <laughs> at critics, but it's not, you know, again, it's all subjective. Dragons, I think man, there's dragons. a lot of movies <laughs> like the shining clockwork, orange, um, uh, uh, Barton Fink, blood, simple Miller's crossing. These are movies that I think a lot of critics today they look back on with a sort of informed nostalgia of like, these are great films. But when these movies, other than Barton Fink, Barton Fink is an exception to the rule. Barton Fink is a truly brilliant film that covers a lot of things very, very uh, in a very mature way that I haven't, I I'm not at in my life, but in terms of like, you know, especially the shining or clockwork orange, these were movies that were, hated when they came yeah. out. Hated. Yeah. The critics hated them. The smartest critics hated these movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Audiences were angry. I mean, part of the reason why Stanley Kubrick ended up moving to England um, and making the rest of his movies in England, including Full Metal Jacket, which was shot in England. That's why yep. fucking Full Metal Jacket doesn't look like Vietnam. He had to, he had to ship all those trees in. Yeah, the reason <laughs> is because he w- he fled for his life because people wanted to kill him after A Clockwork Orange. 
you know? <laughs> so it's like a lot of people kind of forget, or I think sort of look back on movies and forget that like a lot of movies that are great today have sort of caught up with us because of the young people that watch those films without mm-hmm. any sense of an adult, what the adult consensus meant, you know? Yeah. Um, and just, uh, it meant a lot to them. So, to me, when I'm thinking about movies in general, I'm like, okay, well, how is this going to affect a, you know, a seven or an eight year old who's watching it and it doesn't make sense to them yet? You know, and again, I don't know. I'm I'm not I don't have any super delusions of grandeur, but you sort of have to if you're going to, you know, try to be a filmmaker, I think. <laughs> um, you know, that Barton's got him. He does. Yeah, what I'm making <laughs> is, you know, the, the Barton Fink at the age that I watched it when it made no sense to me, set me off on a path in my life. I made this movie for some kid who's eight or nine years old who will be set off on a path on their life. That's it. I don't care about the majority of the critics or the user reviews. It's not for them. Yeah. hundred percent. That's fair. Well, no. And, and, and I think part of the film too is like, you you can tell a little bit of like the Cohen's, having a little bit of, of a reaction like that. Like this is clearly a lot of pent up frustrations of artistically of their own and also working within the system. And, and I, I feel like you do get a real portrait of an artist's frustration and inertia and almost nausea is what you feel at a, at a certain point, um, watching this film. And, uh, it, it definitely feels like, I mean, at, at one point Barton, is uh, complaining about empty formalism uh, to John Goodman, which is just obviously it's a, it's a set of words he absolutely wouldn't even understand. So it's hilarious that he's you know going on his artistic screed towards John Goodman in the first place. But it, right. it is also it is also a critique that a lot of the time that they were lauded with. Um, so it, it's very clear that there is they are having um, a reaction here um, and being. Uh, you know, a little bit of the experience, I think, I mean, I, I can't say cause I haven't tried to get a movie made. So you would, all, you would know it all better, but it, there's just such a deep frustration. I feel watching this film that, it, and part of it, part of it is the, the, the way that they've shot it and the way that they've sort of written it to be, uh, a, you know, sort of symbolic and, and ambiguous in ways that they feel are, they've described as more organic that as Josh pointed out, they didn't actually really come through and say, we wanted everything like this to mean something in a puzzle piece that you can unlock and you can put it all together. This was more just a raw expression of, of conflict and feeling within this, but right. externalized into what eventually is like apocalyptic, uh, hellfire. <laughs> yeah, and even that portrayal of like him going to Hollywood and for the first, I guess, I mean, really until the end of the movie, that president and the executive are pretty much just like sucking his dick. Like they're at one point they're licking, they literally lick his boot. You know, the one guy or kisses it. Sorry, kisses his his foot. Yeah. And and it's just, uh, it, I found that intriguing that it's like they were just kind of you know feeding him what he needed to hear. And then at the very end, they just crush it and are basically like, you know, there's 20 of you. We don't need you at all in any yeah, way, shape, or didn't form. Even, they didn't even see the play. They it, didn't even right. see the play. They just heard about it. That it was We want that Barton good. Fink feeling is what and they say. And <laughs> when I was making Fantastic Four and in the early stages, the one thing that I kept hearing, and it was so eerie for me, it really sent me down a path of just like existential meltdown considering my love for Barton Fink is they kept saying, you know, 
every time I pitch an idea that didn't quite make sense to the executives or the head of the studio, I would hear back. Yeah. But what we want is Josh Trank's fantastic four. We want that Josh <laughs> Trank movie. Oh my and God. I just kept thinking like, this is what the Coens were telling me early on. Yeah. Wow. They wanted that Barton Fink feeling and there's, you know, they can get 20 other Barton Finks in here, 20 other Josh Tranks to do exactly what it is that they were looking for. They wanted that fun shit with powers. They wanted yeah. the wish fulfillment. They didn't want all the other stuff that. Well, really and, and, and it's, it's funny me. too, by the end of the film, he does end up actually, you know, getting something artistically inspired out and he writes it and it is immediately dismissed as I think he calls it a fruity film about suffering. Yeah, yeah, which which yeah. which if if that is not an exact note that the Cohen brothers got, I can't imagine like what else. Like that would that would ex- I imagine that's exactly what someone said to them when they tried to turn in a draft for a serious man. They were like, <laughs> I heard that. Just- <laughs> oh no, not by the time they made a serious man. That was the era when basically Scott Rudin was like, okay, whatever you want to make. Okay, but <laughs> yeah. but but it perfectly describes a serious man. Like that is a right be hardcore just about a a man's suffering and you just have to watch it which is a kind of film that i would very much like but i would understand why you know the suits might uh have that note for him and not appreciate it 100 percent, yeah how was it what were their faces like when you told them that tom hardy was going to shit himself a bunch of times well it was already in the script so tom, okay tom. so they knew they were well aware yeah the movie is very is exactly the script and uh you know so tom tom had signed on to the movie before we got financing so at that point it was sort of like well you know yeah tom tom is here for the pooping so you (laughs) want to tell him there's no poops then go ahead he's on board he's committed he's attached he (laughs) very committed actor love it um one thing um going back to uh barton fink here for a second uh one one thing that really stands out to me, I think, about Barton Fink is the visual style of it, which we haven't got a chance to praise Roger Deakins accordingly yet. Not that anyone needs to anymore, because um, he obviously is uh, he's now won his Oscar. He's now going to win Oscar after Oscar for everything that he does now because he went so long without getting one. Um, but one thing that watching Barton again that really stood out to me about this is just how sweaty and shadowy and claustrophobic uh, the 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 close-ups are uh, of the, of this film and how often it uses like these off-kilter like low angle and overhead compositions of of the hotel Barton stuck inside of his room which is like obviously sort of like decaying but it's it's in direct uh, opposition to a lot of the venues that he goes to in Hollywood which are obviously right. like these really pristine offices and restaurants but you still even you know when the locations are nicer the overall feeling is suffocation i feel like while watching this film yeah, describe a lot very, of feelings that you're very gray and desaturated and you have him set mm-hmm. against these oversaturated sort of los angeles palm tree landscapes Mm, and all the just the texture and the detail of both, like a lot of the 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 images and production design, but also like obviously the, the sound design as well. You spend a lot of this film just listening to fans and bed springs and phone ringing and like the the clicking of the typewriter um, yeah. and the, sort of like the the look of like um, like I I, I watch like the brownish golden overall sort of like palette of the film, and I I watch it now and I just imagine like pieces of chipped pieces of wood. This is just like the vibe it gives me, even when that's not on screen. That's just all that I see. For sure. Right. 
Um, and so, so having him, what I guess you would describe as a lot of these details are supposed to contribute to what I guess you would describe as realism. Like, uh, they, they would be like, you know, they're just so, um, detailed to like, sort of like the tangible reality of the room that he's in, but they are so weaponized in a surrealist fashion after a certain point, just in, in, in terms of the montage and in terms of the overall form, um, and for me, it ends up ultimately becoming a movie about blurring sort of reality and fantasy, which they achieve in a lot of the ways, which, which obviously is a little bit of a critique of, of Hollywood, that there is like this very rickety facade that is being just barely, barely covered up uh, all of these like contradictions and, and psychosis uh, yeah, things like, that are that are happening just underneath it. Even speaking on like just the facade of it all, like at the end when the president gets the uh, uh, the, the the medals on his like his made custom made army general outfit or whatever and it's yeah. not even legit like he's just kind of playing the part that kind of thing like it's just this this idea of you know a total a person totally full of shit yeah yeah and well and 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 the way i i think that the coens have crafted it here to you know um just deliberately again be sort of ambiguous and, and a little bit frustrating in, in in a certain sense because that's the experience that they were going through they've yeah. always talked about it too that when people ask them about it, they were just like, it, it is always artificial to talk about reality with regards to this, this film. Like we don't, we, we didn't really have, have that in mind. They had like a headspace. They had a point of view. They had these sort of unresolved feelings of anxiety uh, and, and, and tension, which, which leads you to wonder, you know, for a lot of people who have seen the film, obviously like is Goodman really there? Is all of this really there? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it, does, just it, walks it but also it doesn't, apartment. and it doesn't, but it also it the conclusion is that it doesn't matter, and exactly, I think that right, part exactly. of the biggest problem that I have with sort of um, you know I guess your sort of typical bougie Western you know POV of film criticism is this need this desperate arbitrary need to understand what is literal and what is yes. not literal. Exactly. And, you know, if this is going to be surreal, then, you know, it should be shot in a surreal way. And well, I and think it, that's bullshit. Yeah. You know, no, it's like, yeah. you're absolutely the right. reason why I made uh, Fonzo slash Capone the way that I did it, without any stylistic difference between what is, who is perceived as real and who is not perceived as real and what experiences are real and what experiences are not supposed to be real is that it doesn't matter. This is, yep, this yep. is the world that this character sees it and that's all you need to know. You're yeah. That is, that is the experience not. regardless, you know, yeah, like and you just, have most, you have most people who watch movies today and they almost need to know what, the genre classification of the movie is in order to know how to properly enjoy it. It's, it's quite sad, but yeah, that's why I don't spend too much time thinking about what other people think about anything. It's like, yeah, it, <laughs> Josh and I talk about it all the time where it's like a lot of, I mean, you know, like YouTube reviews, especially are these things where it's like the lists of just everything wrong with the movie, that kind of shit. It's all very just superficial. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's just like oh, superficial bullshit. Like, it's it's so anti art. It's so anti film. Yes, and absolutely. it's it's like what I just sort of say. These are like grifters, you know. Like, yeah. I'm glad. I'm always happy to know that people can go make a living because I've had my ups and downs in my life for sure. You right. know, I've 
definitely, I mean, especially the last five years of my life, I've been fucking broke, like beyond broke. And I, I, I always think like the worst thing that you could ever wish upon somebody is to not be able to make a living. So even if somebody's out there, a snake oil salesman, and they're like, you know, fucking duping people into buying some miracle toxin, uh, (laughs) that's going to like, you know, solve their cancer, like whatever, if somebody's out there dumb enough to buy it, then I'm glad that somebody can be making a living off of that and paying the bills and be able to like survive <laughs> just right. to the same degree that there's, yeah, the cinema sins and the kind of stuff like that. This, it's a grift. It's, it is, it's exploiting the existence of art in order to just sort of get the attention of the most sort of reductive time-wasting yeah. things that mark what, you know, YouTube or the internet are for people. Yeah, there's yeah. Like, the same conversation happens in like music. Like we'll get into I, I'm from a metal background and the conversations that like these people have about subgenres and genres are just ridiculous. It's like, let's just can we talk about the actual song? The music, oh, yeah, whatever. sure. When they're just like, this is this is like math core. Yeah, exactly. You're just like, like, it's metal. What the just fuck shut up. Are you talking about math core? Shut <laughs> yeah. the fuck up. Exactly. Exactly. Core. It's fucking music. That's just the way that the dude is playing the drums. Shut up. Well, <laughs> And and, and it's so weird to me that, too, that people would have this, like, puzzle box viewing experience of this film because the the symbols are there. And I I do understand that people, they they are – some people can be made uncomfortable by unresolved things like that. But the whole point of, like, what the Coens are getting at with this is that it is that experience of, like, this is – there is a feelings of, like – fraudulence that he has and and feelings of like when you create a world and what is objective and subjective because like um barton has obviously these these ideas of like objectively creating an art for the working people but in order to do that he needs to work within an industry that you know sort of can't make that subjectively possible so 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 you you get into this weird thing where like the actual film itself is interrogating art being an, a kind of insular thing and and an expression and something that exists sort of in his his head in a way and which is why it makes sense that as an artist he would be sort of trapped in it in, imprisoned in it in that way and the way the film captures that I mean this is a film that opens with the inner workings of um, sort of how the art gets made and then ends on him existing like sort of like within a picture. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I mean, but just like you said, the, the, and that's so spot on, man, but like it's, it's what you just said about how it's understandable that art, uh, you know, a piece of art leaving audiences uncomfortable because of these unresolved themes or unresolved ideas. That's what life is. Yeah. Let's take art out of the equation. When, when you lose somebody in your life, somebody dies, your mother, your father, your friend, whomever, what's the thing that everybody says when somebody dies too soon or somebody dies in such a way? It's like, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Wish I got to say something like something left is unfinished. Yeah. But it makes you wonder, like, is that if, if death ultimately doesn't make sense, life doesn't make sense. Yeah. And we spend our entire lives consumed and obsessed with this notion of trying to make sense of life but at a certain point you're going to die in some untimely way that you know people when somebody <laughs> dies yeah but when somebody dies at like the age of 98 you know the thing everybody resolves to to the you know they to to a point of comfort is like well mm-hmm. it was a long life yeah but 
you know what? Wouldn't it be great if you just didn't die? You know, <laughs> like it, it life, life doesn't make sense. Life is an unresolved experience. There's no way to resolve life. We're here. We show up and we fucking die and it's not going to make sense to us. Yeah. And if, you know, the, the, I think there's this, uh, a, uh, a large majority of people who go to, to the movies, it's a way to either escape from life, the life that doesn't make sense or a way to make sense of life that doesn't exist, that doesn't make sense. And I would argue that there's a version of art that just reflects life as it is. And, and that to me is comforting. I am comforted mm. by art that touches upon the experience of an unresolved life because it makes me closer to the human experience, you know? So I look at a movie like Barton Fink and we, you know, we've sat, we're sitting here and talking about it in hyper detail, right? (laughs) That you could show this same movie to somebody else who doesn't care about movies, doesn't care about the history of Hollywood, doesn't care about all these themes. And they would be like, what, what is this movie about? It's about nothing, but it could be about everything at the same time to somebody else. It's a fruity movie about suffering. Exactly. <laughs> that, wow. There it is. Tagline. That's the tagline. That should have been the tagline. That's amazing. <laughs> that was, that was fucking brilliant. Holy that shit. wrapped it up real nice. That was awesome. Well, I know right, you yeah. guys have a limited time, and I don't want to take you away yeah, from, well, no, from hey, Bad we're, Company. We're, we're going to quickly hit the uh, reductive rating round, which on, on this show, I know you don't like your ratings, Josh, but this is where we, that. We, <laughs> we we always do a little bit of a rating. Well, but see, but we have to do the rating because— 10 for, out of 10. 10 out well, yeah, of 10. Yeah, that's go. for me. This one, this one absolutely gets the 5 for me because um, we do— um, uh, out, out of five. So 10 out of 10, Josh gives it a five. I give it a five, but mostly because this was actually one of the earliest um, like films I saw right before I decided to go to film school. Okay. Um, and I, I got to say like, this was a film that like reinvented what I thought like films could, could look like, like when I watched it, I had no idea that a film could be made like this. And again, I also had no understanding for it. And I've, I picked up on little details here and there that, that gets me a, a bit more into it. My, my favorite detail personally is how many times the word head is said in this movie. I think it's 50 or 60 times they say the word head, which is, a, yes, which, which what? blew my mind when I, when I went and looked it up. Yeah. Cause there's so many of like uh, John Goodman being like, Barton, you've got a head on your shoulders or the conversation too, where they talk about how much their heads hurt. Or he's talking about uh, when he, when he, when he has the pus in his ears and he's like, I asked the doctor, I can't get another head. I'm dealing with this one. So they say head like 50 times in this film, which obviously sets up a little bit of John Goodman, literally uh, possibly decapitating people and leaving them in boxes for Barton. But also the experience of an entire movie inside someone's head, like the life of the, and, and it's not even, they don't say the life of the head, it's the life of the mind. Yes. <laughs> the life, the life of the mind, which is what John Goodman runs down the hall yelling as I will show you the life of the mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, and by the way, worth noting, there is a deleted scene that I caught of this film that has the, uh, John Goodman decapitating the, uh, elevator operator <laughs> no really? i didn't see that what are you talking about yeah there's a delete i have the uh, kino lorber blu-ray and they had they were no i've never seen things. that that's yeah. crazy this movie i probably honestly i've seen this movie over 200 <laughs> times at least i've never seen that yeah the, the, wow. when, when when the detectives are looking down the hallway at john elevator who come or john goodman who comes out of the elevator what where john goodman comes out of the elevator 
the elevator operator stumbles out first and he falls down and his head rolls right off and bleeds all over the carpet. That's what they oh see before. God. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. I have to, I have to go look this up. I, I guess they thought that that was that. just too, too much or something. Yeah. 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 Wow. But I, but I think as, as far as an artistic statement by the Coens and a realization, like an external realization of uh, and surrealist <laughs> realization of just like these really subjective pent up anxieties, um, both personally, worldly, industrially, artistically. Um, this is just like a, a, like a towering film for me. And it, it completely um, like shaped how I would think about films because I've always been someone who has looked at and been very um, v- very focused on the way that directors say things wordlessly, the way that they viscerally express themselves using, you know, shots and, and cuts and the way that those impact you as honestly more important uh, to the story than, you know, what two people say to each other, because there is more said in individual compositions and dolly shots and, um, you know, sort of compositional expressions in this film than could ever be said by Barton Fink directly. And I think people who watch this film and they go, oh, he made a deal with the devil or something. And and John Goodman is uh, getting him for that or something. And it's, it's just this weird thing of I couldn't imagine watching a movie this way. This is just like just an, an amazing um, expression of these um like really deep anxieties um, and the, the way that I, I feel uh, the way that uh, I watch this and I end up thinking more of like something like a racer head, I think speaks to what the Coens are going for with this film. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> than than any of sort of like the genre trappings they try to get, you know, people try to box them into like a lot of the time they get trying, like a lot of people sometimes talk about this in the context of, of, of noir or like buddy comedy and stuff like that. And it's just not the feeling that I get while watching it. So as far as like impressionist, like psychic breakdown films go, I feel like this has got to be a top five for everyone. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's uh for me, I, uh, I did have it at the, the high four just because, I mean, I'm, I'm less experienced in film theory and the, uh, understanding filmmaking and stuff like that. I've kind of latched on to Josh a little bit here with this, with this show and I've learned quite a bit. Um, but I, this is the, by the way, time. by the way, I know nothing about, I'm not, I'm not into film theory or anything like that. I go with my gut. Yeah. 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 And I'm, I'm, I don't shun. I kind of have to shun. be that way. Uh, <laughs> just cause I do have a total lack of understanding in, in a sense. But um, this this was the second time that I watched this this film, and the first time I watched it, I really did enjoy it. But I I did have a little bit of trouble with it. It was I'd say like five years ago or something when I was into film, but didn't I haven't hadn't watched many to be honest. Uh, but with this uh, this watch and this conversation, I will say it's really expanded my understanding of what they're doing, uh, especially with um, just just Barton Fink's character in general. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of crossed, but uh, I, I think I'm going to wait until the rewatch, but I feel like this is going to be, uh, I'll consider this a masterpiece. I just feel like I'm getting closer and closer to really understanding it. Um, so, so yeah, right now, can I point out one thing why I think it might qualify as a masterpiece for sure. in okay. a way, from a filmmaker's, it. from a filmmaker's point of view where I, you know, obviously want to set out to hit 
every note possible with anything I do, whether it's weird or whatever. And I don't know if I have, I might, I don't think I have yet, but the scene when John Goodman, uh, in mm, about almost halfway through the movie tells John Saturo that he's going to have to head out of town for a bit. The way that John Saturo reacts to him after their, the arc of their friendship, like he's, this guy is his friend now at first. He didn't like him. He thought he was obnoxious and then they became friends. John Saturo is so heartbroken when Mm -hmm. John Goodman says that he has to leave town. Like he's really, really on such a, just a basic human level, heartbroken and sad for a guy who is, you know, shown shown himself to us as this like super pretentious New York writer who's just like above kind of everything, but at the same time thinks he is so connected to the common man. But like he is such a common man moment. He's just sad. Like he's going to miss his buddy. Yeah. yeah. To me, yeah. that qualifies it as such a masterpiece because it is such a like, I don't care if you know somebody doesn't get this movie or all these ideas and the film theory is not for them. This is a movie that, in that contain that contains just the most basic feelings of just loneliness and, mm-hmm. and, and sadness that I think if you showed anybody, regardless of their taste level, regardless of what they're into, mm-hmm. that that's, that's gonna, that that's a, that's a tearjerker moment, you know? So I, yeah. I think as a film that is, that is high art at the same time, it's just so, it's so sad and, and, you know, and, and, and human on, in, on such a simple level. Um, so anyway, I also do appreciate the scene with when John Goodman, like literally sits him down and just kind of calls him out on all his bullshit. You know, the, the the great line where he says, uh, you're just a tourist with, with a typewriter. I actually love love that line. line. Yeah. It's fantastic. And like that kind of stuff was, was great. Um, for sure. John Goodman plays the character so well. It's like this, uh, there's an innocence and a charm to him, but there's these like there, he, he's that so one, sweaty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's that one <laughs> shot uh, just before we wrap up here, where he's a he's telling uh, Fink to wrestle with him, and he they they do this like subtle zoom in on his face while he's smiling and kind of egging him on to do it. And there's this thing where it's like you get this cross this this. Uh, this thought in your head where you're like, is this a, a friendly moment or is he kind of like, <laughs> is he egging him on here? Like if you don't know how it ends, obviously it kind of puts that question in your brain. So yeah, it's, it's really well, 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 yeah, well done. Goodman has always had that thing where he is incredibly like physically imposing yes. and incredibly charismatic at the same time. Yeah, and sometimes right. you don't know what interaction is playing as what yet. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. But, but like, yeah. So if, if you want a film just like about, you know, a, a, a really bleak drama about a guy sort of navigating an industry and trying to um, sort of maintain his uh, his sort of artistry through it and also meeting other people who are feeling as lost and lonely as he is in, in certain regards. Like, you can just watch it for that. And also, if you want a film where the Coens are talking, you know, taking on headier ideas about, you know, the the subjective nature of art and illusion and artificiality and the very <laughs> decrepit industry that produces those things that we mass consume. Uh, you know, like, you can also have that. And I think the genius is that it, it is absolutely both of those things. And probably yeah. why it was one of their films that was, like, immediately lauded with praise when it came out, even. Works, works on multiple levels. Yeah, there you sure. go. 
for sure. Uh, but that being said, we we have went long. We are going to wrap it up on uh, <laughs> a Barton Fink here, and we are going to be right back, and we're going to be talking about Bad Company. of friends and the worst of enemies bad company from paramount pictures all right we are back and we are talking bad company the 1972 american western film directed by robert benton uh, and also starring uh, jeff bridges and barry Brown are the two lead performances uh, in the film, but there are some other cool performances we are going to get to, especially David Huddleston, who I just absolutely loved in this film. Um, but Bad Company very loosely um, is a uh, Civil War era uh, Western. Also, it's a uh, 70s Western, so it's kind of coming a little bit at the uh, tail end of the Western genre when we were seeing more revisionist uh, Westerns at this point, which is what I guess would qualify as, um, even though it does have a bit of a uh, sweetness aspect to it occasionally that would make it seem a little bit older than it is, which is kind of a cool vibe actually at a certain yeah. point. Yeah, for sure. Um, but uh, it loosely follows uh, Barry Brown's Drew Dixon, um, who is kind of a uptight uh, uh, man who is drafted a into the... Oh, Lutheran. Very specific. I think so. He's a Lutheran, right? Anyway, yeah. I'm sorry. Continue. Well, he's definitely part of a religious family. And to avoid being drafted into the Civil War, um, which it, which uh, he had already lost a brother, I think, in the previous draft that they had done, he decides to uh, run away from home. His mom gives him a little bit of money. Um, and he basically spends uh, the rest of the film living a little bit like an outlaw. But after the outlaw phase is kind of like not really cool or done anymore, which is like a really interesting uh, dynamic that they have. And he ends up running into a small gang of kids uh, led by Jeff Bridges, um, playing a guy named Jake Rumsey, um, who uh, rob him and uh, mug him in an alley. (laughs) Um, And he ends up sort of uh, joining up with them because he realizes sort of a little bit of like a strength in numbers. And here are a bunch of kids who also have dodged the draft and are kind of living uh, the only life that he can sort of do because there is sort of a lawlessness to, I guess, dodging the draft. I also found Um, it funny that the first kind of image we had was uh, the the people hiding. Like one of them was in a dress, I believe. And we recently talked about the uh, the Ned Kelly gang film and i just found that imagery to be quite just a a nice coincidence there well the kid in the beginning he's dragged out wearing a dress they throw him in the back of the um uh in the little paddy wagon and there's all these other kids and one of them is also in a dress right yeah (laughs) Yeah, this was a this was a a A a very yeah it was it was a solid tactic that they also by the way in capone he's wearing a dress at one point just want to point that out yeah sorry Beautiful. That one I didn't catch. I, I caught the Atlas statue, but that one I missed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Got him. Uh, we will um, say that, like, 
the thing that immediately kind of stood out to me about this film watching it was that it has a very sort of like slow autumn Western vibe to it. I think I was reading Pauline Kale write about it. She called it a slapstick tragicomic. Was kind of like <laughs> what the uh, fuck? <laughs> yeah, it was a really weird, weird reaction to it. But it it was interesting in that I think that it does have a much lighter tone. It has a very sweet piano melody score to it. We didn't even bring it up, um, Burwell's score in, in um, Barton Fink, but uh, it also has like a very sweet sounding score to it, which kind of captures a bit of Barton's sort of like naive qualities or more like innocent qualities yeah. as, as as he's sort of exposed but to certain elements. Also, and that is very much what it's used for here. I also What's think brilliant about the score in this though is that it's very um, malleable. It's, it's a... Uh, it's again, it's very simple, similar to um, uh, the Barton Fink score in that it's just really a bunch, like a couple of notes. But the way that those notes are, are, are able to be used in different octaves is both mm-hmm. playful, playful and sad and chaotic. Like there's different variations on those same notes that play throughout the whole movie based on whatever it is going on. And they're all equally powerful. Yeah, and I also think there's this element where it's showing a world where these kids are kind of used to the violence and used to all the grotesque things that they see. So having that kind of normal score that brings more of a traditional hangout kind of thing is, uh, I think, makes sense because it's expressing just how used to it they are. Like, for instance, when they, they, uh, they go up to two of their buddies after they have like their argument and they steal their horses and stuff, they see that they're hanged from a tree. And it seems like they're obviously sad about it, but there isn't like a huge emotion that they're bringing. It's almost as if they expected that to happen. There's no giant it's, like it's no. a better him, better him yeah, than us. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and also, may I point out that in this uh, slapstick tragic comedy, <laughs> uh, that is, you know, was rated PG by the 1972 wow. MPAA. That's fucking uh, crazy. Features yeah. a close-up shot of a child under the age of 10 getting shot in the face with a fucking rifle. Just yeah. wanted to point it out. Yeah, and and they also, same with Barton Fink, they don't stray away from the racial slurs at all. So for this to be like, bring your, bring <laughs> yeah, your 12-year-old like, as long so as you're accompanied. Like yeah. 1970s, the parameters of parental guidance were very loose. <laughs> well, yeah, apparently. We've even seen some movies where we they, they were uh, like the Beastmaster or whatever it was called, sure, where we were yeah. like, there was supposed to be a kid's movie, but they have like full-blown boobs in it and everything. And you're just like, okay. <laughs> Yeah, because back then, I mean, also, too, you know, we're North Americans over here. In Europe, these ideas are so much different. Right. You know, the ideas right. of nudity and, you know, if anything, it's more like violence in films is more shunned in, in Europe than the idea of sort of nudity and things like right. that. Yeah. And somebody actually pointed out to me, a friend of mine from Europe, uh, had pointed out that it's sort of ironic that in a movie like Capone, where there's two, there's one implied shit based off of sound sound design, but one scene where you just see shit for a moment, and the fact that that's what everybody hones in on is the shit, as opposed to the fact that there is a lot of fucking gore in certain yeah. parts of the film. Like that's the thing that people are freaked out about is more just normal bodily fluids, as right. opposed to obscene violence, or like it's paying very, eight very dollars American. to have sex with a guy's wife or something like that. Which also yes. happens in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
Yeah, I was I was uh, immediately struck by the violence in in this because the tone doesn't seem to quite have that. Like I yeah. I, I had this I had this interesting experience with this because like it is very much and it's it's very it's a huge reason of why I think the film works and why I ended up liking it so much was was that this has a childlike quality to it the fact that it's pg the fact that this is a bunch of sort of impoverished sort of like lost boys just kind of all on the road basically sort of just like projecting this sort of like tough cowboy outlaw life but they 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 have this vision of it where they're like we can do it and they talk a lot about how they're going to like they need to be careful because there's going to be natives on on the road on the way there when it's like dude the natives have been kicked out for (laughs) for a long time since since the point that they're they're doing it like they're they're kind of like play acting as cowboys which is and then and then when they suffer the real consequences of that sort of cowboy action that you would see in, you know, one of the more bleaker Eastwood Westerns or something, some of the violence. Um, well, they, like, when they start like, running really into Huddleston, uh, when they run into Huddleston and his gang, that's like, it, they're looking into their future. Yes. Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, Which and, and, is, and, by the way, the meta-ness of Jeff Bridges looking into fucking Dave Huddleston's <laughs> eyes yeah. and seeing the future and the big Lebowski of it all is just yep. beyond that. that <laughs> yeah. That's for that reason alone is why I always tell people about this movie. <laughs> yeah. That is very cool. Well, and I, I loved the Huddleston character. He plays big Joe. And the thing that's so awesome about him is he is an amazing gunslinger. And it's a huge part of his character is that he can, he does all the tricks. He, he, he hits all of his shots. He's awesome, but he is just big now like it, it like it, it is the idea of like the cowboy actually aging and surviving and now you're just kind of like this old fat man um and right. and like he he still has his skills and everything but like he's slower he's wearier he's he's like in, instead of you know uh performing a heist on a bank and it's like super amazing he's just kind of like beating up children in like the middle <laughs> of a forest and taking like the little scraps that they have not as and, cool like, as it used to be yeah, like it's just there's nothing cool about it at all, and it, it's so funny that the kids have this vision of it that it's like this awesome thing that they can do, and when when really they are facing just like the realities of like time and aging and sex and mortality and all of these things, which I also found funny too because if for Jeff Bridges he would have just been coming off um, Last Picture Show, which is very similar thematically. Um, and uh, by by Peter Bogdanovich and I, I it was so funny. I just recently checked that one out, and I also recently because I actually hadn't seen a Benton film, and I was like, oh my god, Josh Trank is bringing on a Benton film, and I haven't even seen Kramer versus Kramer. So I also watched that great uh, movie. Yeah, it, it is a wonderful film, and the thing that's stuck out about me about that, and especially after watching Bad Company too, you do see that he really likes like this kind of what feels like it should have a lighter surface. It does have a little bit of a comedy angle. It does have a little bit of like in the writing, there is raw drama that you feel, but he, he, he really likes to hide like very subtle, um, like moral and character complexity, like in a kind of lighter surface. Um, and, and you can also tell that here too, with his, his writing co co partner, it was a Newman. You said David Newman. Yeah, because uh, David Newman also wrote Bon Bonnie and Clyde, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So like that, that is also what I got huge vibes of because that that also for large portions of it kind of has like this warm slice of life hangout vibe to it yeah, in a lot of sure. ways, and the, but observed through like a criminal road movie context, and like this has something very 
similar going on there. And I just thought that it was so well executed because instead of building like Bonnie and Clyde does to like that, that moment of like violence of shocking violence that it kind of like ends on and you're kind of left with that. And just like life snuffed out is what you're meant to leave with. This indulges in that early. Like when that little boy who literally steals a pie off a windowsill, the most cartoonish crime you could possibly yeah, fucking you see it. That is a like Looney, Looney Tunes. Tunes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> And and the one the dude just blows his fucking head off with yeah. like I actually like like jumped. <laughs> oh, it's it's shock! It's fucking shocking. Yeah, it's still, yeah. And then every they just time you watch that. the movie, it's so shocking when that happens. That's the consequence. Mm-hmm. He took the most childish crime, like you said, ever imagined, <laughs> stealing a fucking cherry pie off of a windowsill, and. <laughs> The, the consequence is taken to the utmost extreme adult finality yeah. you could imagine. And I love you get the, your head shot off. Yeah, and I love the imagery of it, like the way that they set up because, you know, they're like poking their heads out of the bushes. Just like, you know, it's, yeah. it's that very uh, kids on an adventure thing. And then they have that shot right after where they just hold on the kid laying on the ground after trying to steal a pie. And it's just, yeah, it's pretty devastating. Well, also too, what's, you know, Barry Brown's character, and it's also worth mentioning, which is so sad, is the fact that we never got to see uh, Barry Brown's career continue after that because he killed himself not too long after. Oh, wow. I was wondering um, why I hadn't seen him because he's very good in this and I didn't know that. Yeah. No, he he, he killed himself. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. Very sad. Very, very sad, obviously. Was he um, known for something specifically? Was it? Uh, what, what, I forget. He was he in did? something. He was in something before that, and I'm not sure if this was his very last movie or if he did something right after this. But okay. yeah, he did not. This was that was it for him. Wow. Um, but wow. he, uh, what I love about his arc in the film is that he starts off as this very Puritan. Christian God fearing young yeah. man who's, you know, gives moms, gives him, you know, $7 and 50 cents or whatever. And he's going <laughs> to go off to Virginia and he's has all these ideals about, you know, you know, his, his, his life and how somebody's supposed to live their life. And then he gets involved with Jeff Bridges and all these, you know, uh, rowdy kids and goes off on this vagabond criminal petty criminal adventure and the end of the movie the final line is you know they go into a bank in you know the midwest and the, fi- the right. final line of the movie is is him saying stick them up i cry <laughs> i cry every fucking time i watch this movie i cry when he says stick them up and then it starts playing that bum 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 yeah it's so beautiful and so sad and it's just heart it's a heartbreaking um, arc, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, because, be, because it makes because me think like when they're playing that music, mm-hmm. I just keep thinking about his mom yeah. and what she would think, and just kind of this is this is the re- this is the reality of life, you know, and this is the this is where life ended up for him. Yeah, and, and he, that's and something he, too. It feels inescapable for his character. It felt like such a natural arc, even with its sadness. It's it's like yeah. it just you just feel like it had to end there with given the circumstance. 
Well, because all the slice of life scenes that they show you on the way there, like how else is he supposed to survive? He spends right. most of the film resisting them, being saying things like "I was not born" or "I was not raised that I'm way." Not and like he, you. Yeah. Yeah. He he, t- he talks about not wanting to do anything dishonorable or criminal or, while literally surviving with like criminal bandits, and even, like he spends so much time resisting that. Or even having that scene where like Jeff Bridges is the only one that's capable of like skinning and breaking apart the rabbit, and it seems like that's they're one all of my kind of sickened by it. And even as Jeff Bridges is doing it, he seems like, oh, my God, this is kind of fucking nasty. Well, yeah, I don't I don't I don't know about you, but my read of that scene was that Jeff Bridges was also doing it for the first time. Yes, I agree. I think so. Totally. Because it was that same thing of, you know, these kids are puffing up their chests trying to portray themselves as these tough guys, just like when Barry Brown lies in the beginning that he had, you know, robbed that uh, liquor store or whatever the fuck. And it turned, and he obviously didn't. And Jeff Bridges knew he'd called him out on it, but yeah. And, it and which with- also plays into sort of another one of my favorite films, Unforgiven, which is, you know, the Showfield kid who had sort of, you know, sold himself to Clint Eastwood in the beginning of the movie that he had like killed these Mexican dudes with his, his pistol, which is where he got the name, the Showfield, the Schofield kid. Yeah. And uh, then he finally, after he gets to see, after he kills somebody for the truly for the first time, and then he tells the truth that, like, you know, I didn't really shoot those Mexicans. I just, you know, hit one of them with a shovel, basically, right. and ran. Right. And like uh, another part that uh, he sh- kind of shows, like this bravado or whatever, is when he, uh, when they have sex with the, the man's wife like the prostitute and then yeah. he lasts like what like 15 seconds and he still comes off afterwards like a total confident smile on his face and he says something like i don't waste no time you know it's like this constant seconds it was like four seconds <laughs> yeah. he popped up he's like Woo, what? i've never seen a man so confident after that amount yeah. of time but <laughs> uh but yeah it's a, just another kind of expression of like their their false confidence this bravado that they're right. trying to put across for sure yeah, no, I, I I really like that, and especially when it when it has has them meet the real deal, and they meet this this big Joe played played by Huddleston, and he kind of gives them like uh, the way that he talks to Jeff Jeff Bridges, um, and he gets this great line where he says, "If you pull a gun on a man, which happens from time to time out here, you better shoot it a second later, because other men won't be as patient as I am." Is yeah. Um, so good, so chill. Reminds me of that line from The Good, The Bad, The Ugly, where he's like, "If you gotta shoot, shoot. Don't talk." <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it, there's just something also so in in the details of the way that that's written. That's like, which happens from time to time out here. Like, it, 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 it's at once like he's literally trying to give him a lesson as like someone who has survived yeah. doing what he's trying to do or thinks he's doing yeah, for like talking decades. He's talking to kids. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> which, which, and he's, which, and he, he's talking to kids and he's also letting them know, like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be patient with you because you're kids, but I'm not going to treat you any different. Right. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, he, his gang does eventually hang kids and try to murder the kids yes. later in the film. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, I, and, and Barry Brown and Jeff Bridges give him a fucking run for their money, man. That's yep. a great sequence, too, when they're mm-hmm. shooting out with them in this swamp you know, i love how great. absolutely messy that fight is like it's so oh, awesome. poorly choreographed in in the sense that it's like a real like two inexperienced people yeah, getting yeah. lucky in a gunfight kind of deal almost it's so well, it's also it's similar to the way that they block the scene when barry brown and bridges are fighting in that house early in the beginning it's yeah. so messy i love i love the blocking in this movie 
Yeah. Uh, they just yeah, they just basically destroy that set in the bank or wherever they're at at the beginning. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, and I I also like too that every single person they come across because again, these are people they're they're dodging the civil war and they're going west, they're going to live the out the outlaw life and every single person they run into is like, "Man, the West fucking sucks. We're all going the other direction. Where the fuck are you guys going? <laughs> yeah, and it's one of the few movies. There's so many. There's, I'm a huge, huge, just Western fanatic buff, whatever you want to call me. And it is one of the few movies that uh, that's the sort of driving point of the film is that it's not any better out West. It's even, it's, it's sad. It's empty. It's depraved. Yep. Um, you know. And, and also, too, like just to sort of draw the parallel back to Barton Fink a little bit, what is so meaningful to me about this film and why I think it's such an interesting movie to kind of, you know, play off of the for them to play off of one another is that there are films that end on such a bleak existential note that you wouldn't necessarily if you think about, you know, filmmaking and producing films as a form of commerce like to please a crowd and give them what they want i always love movies that just take such a such existential risks with the endings of yeah. their films you know and i i you know you were uh I, is it jamie were you talking yeah. about uh, metal before about yes. music yeah yeah oh, you yeah. know i there's something that i uh think about a lot as it relates to filmmaking because i like to think about it more in terms of music and you know, you can with music. It's it. How much does it really cost to write a song? I mean, or produce a song? Right. It, it depends. And especially now, like you can write and produce a song for like nothing and make it sound great. But yep. like the production cost difference between writing and producing a song, even 10, 15 years ago, versus making a movie mm-hmm. is so different. You need a massive crew. You need yep. a huge budget. You got you need all this stuff. And because of that you have less of a diversity and emotional um, uh, um, emotional vibe from movies than you do from music. Like in music, it's like not that big of a deal. If somebody listens to a song that they don't care for, they can skip to the next song. Right. But when somebody watches a movie that they don't care for, it's a very different thing entirely because they're thinking so much about like, there's how many resources were required <laughs> in order to produce this thing as opposed to, you know, somebody you know, fucking around on a guitar and singing. Yeah, but I, yeah. but to me, the emotional expression, that's why I just, I feel like movies like these are so important um, that they even exist because it's an anomaly for a movie to exist that isn't made to please a crowd, but it is meant to leave a crowd with a chilly existential feeling of, of life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, and that, that that's definitely when, what you get, um, with with the end of that too, because even though again, uh, Benton really likes this thing of sort of like an, an ironic distance between a little bit of, of the surface and like some of the content. Like the, it plays that uh, uh, that song and it does that freeze frame and the action that they're doing is like the first time that they feel like I guess they're sort of in control. They're doing something cool. They're going into rob a bank. It's like a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid moment for them, and they feel great. But there, there is this element of the whole movie that we've seen up until that point is like the ultimate future for anyone, you know, who is partaking in this version of the West anymore that doesn't even really exist. Like there's no glamour yeah. to that. At, 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 at best, at very best, they are going to end up sort of like 
old and fat and like showing off the cops who are about to kill them all of their great moves and they're going to spend most of their time just like robbing and killing like poor and people and children until they're dead right. themselves <laughs> yeah exactly like they even have those those opening shots where they show a bunch of like younger kids uh coming together to steal from like an old lady uh they're, yeah. they, you know they they, they think they, they a, yeah, like a none, large group none, of them steal none from of the adults. robbing or crimes are cool in this fumi at all no <laughs> they're completely yeah, unglamorous <laughs> exactly exactly yeah, which is which is just it's so funny that the movie ends on like what should be the most glamorous moment um, and and sort of in, in the way that they shoot it. I mean, vaguely is because it is a cool moment of them breaking in and saying, stick them up. But right. everything we've seen up until that point so contradicts that. that yeah, you can't, yeah, yeah. not feel cool. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. You, well, you that's what's so sad about this. Really what, what, how the movie works as a commentary on movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. like you said, you know, the final moment of the movie is really what we often see is like the cool, common moment of any sort of a Western outlaw type of film. Like it would be up. the opening of a cool Western. Yeah, yeah but yeah, exactly. <laughs> and here it's the ending of this sort of sad, bleak tale of childhood gone awry. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it almost it almost, it almost uh, at points gave me like a Huckleberry Finn kind of. Vibe oh, for sure. Right. Like, yeah, right. I totally had that vibe. Yeah. <laughs> what um, a great movie, honestly. I'm, yeah, thanks I, this for is the, this one. Obviously, the first time that you you'd seen, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, this yeah. Was the first time. I hadn't even yeah, heard. I mean, of this is one of these movies. Crazy. Like, really? I always yeah, try I to recommend. I always try to recommend movies like this to people, and you know, not everybody goes to see them so it's just a joy for me to be able to talk about it with people yeah it seems really overlooked it's uh, a shame it's such a think try to think of a movie that's anything like it or that says specifically what it says there really isn't anything like it it's such a beautiful film so brilliantly acted and gordon willis's photography is so so beautiful and also you know i i'm a big road trip guy i've driven across america at least a dozen times and I've driven through uh, every state on the mainland, uh, not, you know, not Alaska or Hawaii. <laughs> and some of the areas that they go through, like, that's what Kansas looks like. That's what, you know, it's, it, it's very, it's mm. the one, one of the few Westerns that I've seen where, you know, they kind of pick the sort of more bleak, open uh, landscapes of the Midwest um, in ways that they, you know, usually those movies opt out of. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I I really really like this a lot. And pivoting to the reductive rating round, this one definitely gets the 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 high four for me, um, because like I gotta say, like it was it was really just the unique blend of kind of like that that sort of warm light sort of childlike tone, because that is obviously the point of view of these kids who are who are uh, dodging the draft, um, but just infected by the bleaker elements of a western genre, and also obviously a at this point, the Western was, you know, um, sort of going going out of style very much so. So, it, so it's also a bit of a, a, a genre commentary at the same time and movie commentary um, where they are seeing sort of like these bleaker elements. And not that there weren't like bleak Westerns before this or anything, but it's just, it's just a case of seeing that infused with the child's direct realization of like yeah. this thing that they glamorized or think was, um, you know, sort of a, a mode of existing that would be better than being forced to go to war is, is almost just as nearly as bleak. Um, well, it's almost and- like the kickoff of American movies that 
uh, had kids doing fucked up things, you know, like sort yeah. of bookended with like the outsiders. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, and I, I also really liked, um, the back half of the film where, um, it, it gets into a bit more of a tiff between Jeff Bridges' character and, and Barry Brown's character, where Jeff Bridges realizes that he's been hiding money from them this whole time that they they could have been using, and he decides to join the outlaw gang. And right when he joins the outlaw gang is when that gang gets captured. Uh, yeah. And so, and 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 watching Barry Brown, who is obviously very righteously pissed off at Jeff Bridges for stealing all this money and getting involved in all of this, he still feels more kinship with this young boy who is right. just lost and alone as him than he does the police, who are also going to be chasing after him once they realize he's a, he's a draft dodger. So when he lets him go, and on on the promise that there is a thousand dollars of buried money somewhere, and which he he obviously knows is not true, and immediately he calls him out on it once he they actually escape and jeff bridges when he goes okay i was lying to you if you're gonna shoot me just go and when he goes no you are gonna pay me back every dollar yeah, and beautiful. he, has, he, he beautiful. has that moment of like it's a tough guy thing to say where the cowboy would be like no i am going to forcefully watch over you while you recollect all my money but the way that he performs it is such more of like a like there is a connection here almost spiritually, like as a friend, this is what's happening. And we're both going to agree that we're going to still keep acting tough. And, but like the actual, um, sort of emotional expression of that scene is, um, like much deeper than that. And I, I, I think that once you have that and then you have them go and you have them robbing the bank, with the context of all of the sadness and everything we've seen sort of leading up to that. And for Drew like, to I, actually be the one to say, stick him up. Like he, it's not, I don't yeah, believe it's yeah. Jeff it Bridges wasn't Jeff character. Bridges. Right. Yeah. So it was he's really taking the turn. <laughs> yeah. Well, if anything, it's the fact that Jeff Bridges was fronting the entire time. That's true. That's being true. A tough guy who was truly the, the true alpha in that equation is Barry Brown. Yeah. yeah. Cause Barry Brown walked out into the world with a fucking, hardcore but no but he also his seven dollars represented this hardcore moralistic conviction that he right stuck onto until the moment where until the you know the his the moment when he just like couldn't anymore like he he had more conviction than any of the rest of those kids like right he Mm. truly was the alpha he just had a different way of looking at life than them walking into it until he realized that he was just one of them Right, because even you know? at the beginning, he has like those journal entries that we get in his inner monologue, yeah. where he's like expressing, like, "I've fallen into some rough types and all that." Yeah. So yeah. I I, sure. I I really loved the one after he gets uh, beaten by Jeff Bridges and abandoned when he says, "I've been robbed of all um, of all my money and left to die alone on the prairie." Yeah. And I was like, that pretty much expresses what it feels like watching this movie. That is the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. such a be- you know you got to admit it's such a beautiful movie. Oh, Gordon yeah. Willis. It's too, so beautiful. I just on such an emotional level, just, you know, when Barry Brown is saying, you know, you're going to pay me back all that money. I'm like, these are the things that I cry at, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, cause it's just so it's, it, it, it's the reason why I love movies. It's the reason why I aspire to make movies is to someday, hopefully make a moment like that. Or while I'm writing randomly, um, find myself inspired to get to a line like that, that makes sense in that context. You know, yeah. that's why we make stories in the first place. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah. That, that, that moment is, is great. So, um, but you go ahead, James. 
Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give this the high four out of five. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, one just last shot or scene I wanted to, to throw in here was that that uh, that shot of the guy being hanged uh, off yeah. of the uh, off of the horse, and we see like the full hanging and all that. I've just found that to be like technically impressive because the shot is held really long while that guy is just dangling from the string mm-hmm. or from the rope. And uh, yeah. I don't know exactly you know how they did it or or what because it seems it looks very real. Uh, but I just thought that that was impressive and really expressed like the violence that this time was. Uh, uh, I, 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 uh, I think I know how, well, first of all, just say like hashtag 1970s. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. second of all, um, <laughs> I'm fairly sure that they had, uh, some type of r- like ratchets rigged onto right. his, uh, uh, onto him from the back so that it held up his body. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, it's just, yeah. it's very effective. Very cool shot. It's very, oh my God. It's amazing. Yeah. 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 That'll be mine for sure. 100%. Now for you, Josh, we can assume masterpiece, right? <laughs> I mean, 10 out, 10 out of 10, or as yeah. yep. my friend Tim Heidecker would say, you know, five bags of popcorn. <laughs> yep. Five bags yep. of popcorn with a couple of those um, uh, skinned rabbits. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I was just checking my notes to see if I missed anything. Uh, one, one thing I, I wanted to mention before we head out, pair this with Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. That was what I thought about while watching a little bit too, because also Jeff Bridges and also you have Eastwood and Jeff Bridges there and you have Eastwood, the aging heister who has kind of like seen the, the, the worst elements of everything that um, Jeff Bridges is first starting to get into and has one of the most tragic conclusions also about, um, you know, the way that that lifestyle um, ends up actually treating these, these people. And, uh, I, I had just watched it like probably, you know, like a few weeks ago or a few months ago. Um, and I've real realized that Jeff Bridges is just the best. Yeah. He's awesome. Um, that's, yeah. that's, that's been the thing. He is I truly mean, a little late, I guess. Remember the first time that we all saw the trailer for the tr- Neutron movie? That was just like, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like anytime you throw Jeff Bridges in anything, you're there. Like yeah. who isn't there? Absolutely. Maybe. Um, guys, this has been uh, honestly a real pleasure. Like this is really fun. It's so rare that I could actually kick back and talk about movies that I love and not have to just, uh, recount, um, things about fantastic four. So thank you for that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Honestly, I think I, 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 well, yeah, I'd, I'd love it at some point, maybe in a month or the month after, uh, we should do yeah. uh, Big Lebowski and The Late Show because those are two movies that really weirdly complement each other. And I would just recommend, you know, checking The Late Show out anyway and just email oh, me and let will. me know what you think because yeah, I am off of all social media for the next five to six months. Oh, okay. Sounds good. Now, I, this is usually the part of the show where we have people plug stuff. Now, obviously, everyone yeah. go watch Capone on, on digital Capone. release. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Exactly. Capone. Now, um, Obviously, you probably can't say anything about your what you're working on. Can't because because yeah, because the, the answer is I don't even know. I mean, there's <laughs> like you know, there's like a million things I'm writing and thinking about, and it's hard to say exactly what the right thing will be. I what mean, are you, what, right. what are you gaming right All, now? Well, I think the next thing that I want to do because there's oh God, there's like 20 different. The, honestly, there's like this is not like. Uh, you know, me being fanciful, but there's like, there's literally about 20 things that I really, really care about. And I think about a lot. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'd really like to do next is something that is just fun. And mm-hmm. by fun, um, I don't know exactly what I mean by fun, uh, you know, because I think a pwn is fun and it's clearly <laughs> not for some. But I actually want to make something widely fun. And that I think would be an interesting challenge. Um, so, yeah. you know, I don't know. I might I might fuck around and make a smash. So there you we'll go. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. I'm Sounds excited. Good. Well, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us and bringing these films on with you. We we absolutely had a had a blast. Um, but we are gonna for our listeners, we are gonna be back uh, in one week's time. What are we doing, Jamie? What are we? Uh, uh, we're doing Last House on a Dead End Street, 1977. Right. Roger Watkins taking a left turn. That is not uh, that is <laughs> yeah. not a nice movie at all. One of the most uh, graphic and uncompromising uh, low budget films Wait, made what? in the what 70s. Movie? Uh, Last House on a Dead End Street by Roger uh, Watkins. Yeah, sure. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking insane. Yeah, that that Loved that it. has a, uh, a a woman being dismembered uh, and screaming, and then they give her smelling salts to wake her back up to continue doing it. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. Not a great time. But we're also going to be talking oh, about Donald Camel's uh, "The White of the Eye." Yeah, that um, was a really, really unique film. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, um, which which is just a a very um, surrealist American giallo almost. It turns out um, to be very personal. It seems too very personal to him as as an as an artist uh, who was who was very tormented and ended up taking uh, his own life um, due to artistic compromises by the sounds of it because yeah. someone cut up his film uh, that he oh, did. Oh, I Christmas know that. Again. I know that. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunate. Unfortunate. Uh, but we are going to be talking about White of the Eye, and it's it's honestly a genuinely amazing film that I had watched for the first time. So we're going to be excited. That's going to be on uh, the Patreon episode for everyone next week. Again, patreon.com slash podcast. Uh, but ne- the week after, we're going to be back with a guest, and we are going to be talking about um, Necromantic 2 <laughs> and Splatter Naked Blood, Hell which are yeah. two films I haven't heard of. They're 70 minutes long. They sound incredibly graphic and disgusting, um, which is uh, – so, yeah, I'll, like, be, I'll be listening to that. <laughs> so i'm i'm very curious how how those play out uh but that being said i think that will wrap it up for everything um this week thanks so much for listening guys and keep it sleazy keep it sleazy keep it keep it or don't or don't keep it sleazy <laughs> <laughs> but, but for me, the purposes Trankster. no but for the purposes of me being a fan of the show totally keep it sleazy <laughs> okay There we go. But I'm not on record ever saying that. All right, guys. Much love. (laughs) Amazing.